0: Stem
1: Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London.
0: Hello everyone and welcome back at the Stem Cell at Lunch podcast from King's College London. I'm a first year PhD student and I'm very glad that I'm joined by Emma Rowlands, an exciting researcher that is based at the Gordon Institute at the University of Cambridge. Welcome Emma.
1: Thank you for having me Elena.
0: So um, before I I'm going to scramble on and talk about what your research is. I think it's best that I just leave this stage to you. So I'm going to start by asking you very quickly, just what is the overall research topic that you do?
1: So my lab works on lung stem cells, particularly in development, so how our lung is built in the embryo, and then in maintenance, so how we maintain the lung structure that we have as an adult.
0: And do you mainly work with human cells or do you do animal work?
1: So historically, we've done mostly animal work, but I'd say within the last maybe four years, we've switched to doing mostly human, human cells derived mostly from human embryonic lungs, but supplemented by in vivo work using mouse models.
0: Just out of curiosity, do do you prefer the mouse model? Do you enjoy working with the mouse or do you actually prefer the human model more?
1: I love both, (laughs) I'll be honest, I'm a geeky scientist and I'll look at stem cells in any system. But there's advantages to each. Obviously, human cells, we think, are going to be much more important when we're starting to think about activating pathways for lung regeneration, because we can actually work out the human-specific cell-cell interactions. But of course, we can only look at those in the dish. Whereas the mouse models give you the in vivo, in lung context. um, But of course, we have to bear in mind that you can cure a disease in a mouse, and that may or may not work in human.
0: So has it ever happened to you that you discovered something in a mouse and you went into the human model and it showed completely something different?
1: It hasn't, but I think that's because we work on very fundamental properties of stem cell biology. So, for example, in the mouse, we've spent a lot of time and effort characterising which cells are the stem cells. How often do they divide to make a new stem cell or to make a new differentiated cell? that will replace the epithelium. And a lot of its properties, the fundamentals are conserved. But when we look at the details of how the signalling works, that will differ. And I
0: think this is kind of coming because a lot of the talks I heard, I'm assuming that you are looking at the organoid system in the human. Is that correct?
1: So using the human cells, we grow our human embryonic lung cells into what we call organoids. So I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with organoids, But essentially, we think of them as mini-organs. Ideally, we'd like to think of them as mini-organs. But realistically, they're groups of cells that are growing in 3D organisation that have some features of the organ. And it's really important to be aware which features you're capturing and what you can really study using your organoid.
0: Also, I've heard before that you can take the organoids and put them in the mouse. Is that something you have considered or done at all?
1: That's something we've done. So we dissociate our organelles to single cells, and we've put them into the lungs of injured mice to ask if we do that, will they respond to local signaling cues and make new adult lung cells. And we've also put them in the kidney of an adult mouse. So that might sound a little bit counterintuitive, why would we put lung cells in the kidney? But the kidney has an amazing blood supply. And essentially, you put your lung cells on the top of the kidney, and they can build a mini lung on top of the kidney, fed by the blood from the mouse
0: basically you're recreating an organ on top of an o- organ
1: essentially you get these little flat lung structures on top of the mouse kidney so both useful and we're we we have not done any for a while if i'm honest um but we're just re-picking up these techniques again to study some very specific questions for specific projects we have. i
0: have to admit that sounds very futuristic alien kind of thing sounds really cool and interesting i've never had the opportunity to work with organoids yet so it's always fascinates me to hear about it i wanted to now talk a bit more about also the lung. so i've we've discussed human versus mouse. So I was interested, what is the advantage of looking at from the developmental aspect instead of just culturing cells from a human that has a diseased lung and studying it into this in vitro model?
1: That's a great question. So, and I want you to think for a moment about your lungs. So for 90 odd years, I hope, or more, your lungs are going to be breathing air, very polluted air, and doing their utmost to maintain a barrier so that all the stuff you breathe in, like COVID, for example, doesn't infect you, and doing their utmost to defend you from pollutants. And when people present in the clinic with lung disease, they're usually at a very end stage of a lung disease after many years of breathing polluted, contaminated air. So those cells undergo a lot of changes. We do get those cells and we do look at them sometimes, but actually, If you want to rebuild a lung, then it's really interesting to start with embryonic cells and learn how the embryo normally builds it with the hypothesis then that we can reactivate some of those processes in the diseased adult lungs.
0: So is that you to do like kind of a gene therapy?
1: This is not really a gene therapy experiment. We're more thinking, so we now, one of the really most exciting discoveries in stem cell biology, I could say, in the last 10 years is stem cell plasticity. So we now know that what happens in normal maintenance for tissue, cell A makes cell B, which makes cell C, can be really varied when the tissue has to repair. So we hypothesize that giving the right signals at a certain stage during the repair process, we can skew the tissue to a productive repair to make normal lung tissue again, instead of what they normally do in disease, which is make a repair essentially go wrong and often get scar tissue and unproductive repair and non-functional tissue.
0: So basically the sick thing is to reduce the scarring. Because I've heard it, I think, being done, I don't know, it was not the heart cells and then there was the whole scandal about stem cells and heart, about being fake. So I don't know how accurate I'm talking about currently. But I think that they wanted to go directly regenerate the heart, like in, if you got a heart attack, that it regenerates immediately without getting the scars. Is that kind of the same principle?
1: So, so people been working on it in the heart field for... 20 or 30 years as soon as stem cells were discovered and there's been lots again lots of curing mouse that hasn't transferred to the clinic but the heart people are getting really close now because we been working on this for so long and I was just at a big international stem cell meeting last week and one of the big heart PIs from heart, heart labs from America was describing the cure that they now have for monkey heart attacks. So, of course, you know, we're not quite curing human yet, but if you can cure a monkey, then that looks very, very hopeful for a pig, which is the models they tend to use in the heart field. So in the heart, they tend to put new cells into their organ and those new cells will incorporate and repair the damaged tissue. And this is one way we could go in the lung. The other possibility for the lung that we're still hopeful might work is because you have lots of stem cells already, that we could just switch the behavior of the stem cells that we normally have in our tissue. So,
0: what's the percentage of stem cells in the lung actually?
1: That's a really good question. So, I think we can definitely say that there are one or two cell types in the lung that won't act as stem cell under any circumstances. But almost every other cell type that's been tested, if you stress the situation, if you force the, an injury or repair situation, then cells will change their behavior and start to act as a stem cell. So there's an awful lot of plasticity in that.
0: And I can already imagine people being like, oh, not again, this question, but I mean, it's the crisis, it's COVID. So I'm gonna ask you, have you thought about implementing any of your ideas into the actual COVID-19 situation? Have you worked on it?
1: So we did a a few experiments, Um, actually in Cambridge, and access to CL3 laboratory space where you could do COVID experiments became very limiting very quickly. So we did a couple of experiments by collaboration, but actually, We're mostly going embryonic cells in the lab and we tend to get children's lung cells and children actually don't get infected by COVID very well. So it wasn't the most productive model for that. But what I am excited by is long COVID. One of the symptoms of long COVID is actually continued difficulty breathing and lung fibrosis caused by the damage caused by the virus. So we're very hopeful that the fundamental work we're doing on lung development can be repurposed To activate repair in a fibrotic situation but this is a long-term project.
0: When you look at your lung model COVID or in general do you actually consider any immunological aspect inflammation of it? I'm I'm just interested what what the kind of talk between immunology and stem cell is here.
1: So this isn't something we work on much in my lab but it's a very very active area of research in the field and there's all sorts of interesting immune cells in the lungs, so a lung resident and some come in in response to infection, which crosstalk with the different lung stem cell populations. And actually, it depends where you are in the lung, whether you're in the airway tree or in the alveoli, which stem cells are the most important and which immune cells are the most important.
0: So, where do you actually think you want to put yourself? Do you want to like, focus on a disease specifically, or is your idea of like, just this could be a treatment for everyone, for every kind of disease?
1: So I'm really excited about the underpinning biology. And partly, as we've been talking about from the standpoint of regeneration, can we take what we're learning about bi- development biology and apply it to the adult? But partly now we have our human organoid models from the standpoint of looking at genetic variation in people. There are more and more genetic differences between individuals that have been identified that are linked somehow to disease susceptibility. But often we don't know what that link is And it's very hard to pin it down in mice, partly because it takes so long to do an in vivo mouse genetic experiment, and partly actually because the region of DNA you're interested in might just not exist in a mouse. So now we've got the human models, we're very interested in collaborating with the human geneticists to actually do functional genetics and contribute to the understanding of disease susceptibility, as well as to regeneration.
0: So what you basically do is go change the genetic of this organoid. Am I correctly understanding?
1: So... Um, Some of your listeners may be a little bit unaware of this sort of work. So the idea is you take a huge population of people, and for example, you can measure their lung function. And there are labs in Leicester that are amazing at doing this. You measure their lung function, and you identify people that have really good lung function and people with not so good lung function. Then if you take a big enough sample size, you can sequence the DNA of those individuals and say, well, which loci, which genes, or which often which regions nearby to different genes are often associated with those lung function differences. So often what they find is not a mutation within a gene itself, but within a control region for a gene. And then you have to try and figure out where in development only adult is that gene expressed, which gene is that control region actually controlling, because they can be many long distances away within the genome. And I think now we have these human genetic tools and a really great cool toolkit for using in the organoids this is the sort of question that I think is the, the next thing to address.
0: I think I'm going more maybe in a sphere of sci-fi question here. I struggle to do more than two lanes of swimming without having to stand up and catch my breath. So could this genetic variation in like the future, as like, I'm not saying currently actually used to enhance your sport activity? Like if they find out I'm very bad at catching my breath in sports, could they do something about it?
1: That's a good question. You'd probably need to speak to the Olympic organising committee about whether this would be something they would allow. But I think it's related to a various spectrum of diseases. I think if you take asthma as a really good example, I'm mildly asthmatic. And although I can swim, unlike you, I can't jog. And I try and run. It's a jog in my case. After 10 minutes, I have to stop and I take my inhaler and then I can go again. So what you could imagine is that we pick up people on the edge of some of these different spectra and develop actually disease modulating treatments or phenotype modulating treatments. that are not really a disease that could improve some of these things. But I think no one is thinking, to make this quite clear, about genetic engineering, except within the cells growing in the dish. Yeah, I think the
0: Olympic Committee wouldn't be happy and that would go towards the designer baby kind of thing. So maybe not ethically approved. (laughs) So I think uh, what our kind of listeners are a bit interested in is early career advice. So we have maybe undergrads, masters and also PhD students listening. So I just was interested to know how you came about to choose the lung as your disease model, basically your pathway there.
1: Yeah, so actually... I did my undergraduate degree in Cambridge and fell in love with drosophila genetics. There's loads of fabulous drosophila geneticists in Cambridge. So then I went to do my PhD in Edinburgh, working with an Andy Jarman, who works on fate choice in the drosophila peripheral nervous system. So essentially how a stem cell decides to be a neuron. Or in our case, it's a particular type of photoreceptor in the fly eye. So I was interested in development biology and genetics. And I went from that wanting to do a postdoc And I wanted to switch to a mammalian system. So I thought it would be interesting to work in a different model and was thinking, actually, maybe one day I'd go back to Drosophila. But I ended up going to work with Bridget Hogan in North Carolina in Duke University. And Bridget Hogan was one of the really early pioneers of using modern genetic techniques and embryonic stem cells in order to make mutant mice. And in her career, she'd worked on all sorts of different aspects of normal mouse development, from germ cells, to ear, to skin, to lung, but when I joined her lab she said, I Emma mean, you can do anything you like, but it has to be the lung, so I sort of fell into working on lung development because Bridget was trying to focus, but it's a fascinating field and a really fascinating organ.
0: And did you ever consider veering away from the lung in your lab, like introducing another organ?
1: I have and there's so much to do in the lung, I <laughs> in no hurry to do so, um, I sometimes think it'd be really nice to have a second system, a second organ, a second organism, I mean. So I had considered at some point working on gland development, maybe having zebrafish models, but actually now we have the human organoid models. So we have our two models, we have mouse and human cells, and I think I'm pretty happy at the moment.
0: Just of curiosity, because you're talking about kidney, would kidney be one that links together with the lung then, as adding as one?
1: Kidney forms by branching, um, so there's many commonalities, the genetic control is very, very different. I often teach kidney together with lung when I teach undergraduates, but it forms a completely different germ layer. So the kidney is mesodermal derived rather than endodermal derived. And there are also a lot of differences.
0: I've been shown to be ignorant in some basic stem cells differentiation there. I'm a bit embarrassed currently. Um, so you mentioned that you uh, actually did your postdoc in America, is that correct? Um, what do you think? Is it worth going to the other side or of the pond or does it matter really where
1: you work? That is a really good question and I think the world is changing. So when I did my PhD, I was Wellcome Trust funded and we would be brought to meetings in London and people would say to us at the Wellcome Trust headquarters, unless you go away and do a postdoc abroad, you'll never get a job back in the UK and we're very much encouraged to do it. But really the world has changed. No one would ever say that now. And I know some super successful scientists who've been in the UK for PhD, postdoc and now doing beautiful work as PIs. So I would say there's lots of opportunities in science to work all over the world if that suits you. And we had a fabulous time in the States. My husband came with me and got a job and we had lots of fun.
0: Yeah, that is actually an interesting point because I remember when I was being taught in undergrad, all the lecturers did a postdoc in America and the younger the lecturers were becoming and the more they were also just uk based so i think it's a good point that you don't have to leave because i feel like people are very scared to go into this academic field because there was this concept that you had to travel around and you couldn't stay home because i know there's people that love staying home and that's it (laughs)
1: there's nothing wrong with that i think the world has changed that pressure is gone
0: yeah definitely i totally agree with that just out of interest how is the Drosophila to humans, what can you actually learn out of a Drosophila system?
1: I can learn loads of Drosophila. So from a career point of view, if you train in Drosophila genetics, then you're learning the most rigorous experimental genetic system around. So then you can apply that to anything at all. So from a career point of view, doing any work on Drosophila is amazing. But actually, from a human genetics point of view, and I didn't know the numbers, so I'm sorry, this is embarrassing. Um, I don't know what percentage of the genome is conserved between humans and Drosophila, but it's pretty high within the coding region. And there are very nice Drosophila models of cancer now, extremely nice Drosophila models even of aspects of heart disease. So I think fundamental studies in Drosophila really underpin an awful lot of developmental and stem cell biology. I
0: have to say, I had no clue that you could do cancer modelling. I see... Yeah, I, we have this uh, drosophila lab on our floor. And I just see these people tapping these little tubes of so who doesn't know. They tap the tubes, feed them, tap them back. So to me, it seems like a big mystery what you can actually do with them.
1: No, it's fabulous. Um, Kyra Campbell in Sheffield is probably the most local person doing beautiful cancer genetics in the software. So you can study metastasis, you can study initial cancer formation, and that work really does seem, there's people in the states using this as drug screening tools. So screening human drugs for effectiveness on drosophila systems, of course, are much cheaper and quicker than any possible human system.
0: And I think I'll just finish off by kind of asking you the kind of bait, obvious question. What do you think you see for your future in your field of studies?
1: So, it's really a really exciting time to doing lung development and lung stem cells. There's so many papers coming out with single cell at the same of this, that and the other, human, pig, every stage of development and disease you can imagine. So what I think is exciting now is the opportunity to actually do some functional work based on this and actual progress towards regeneration. And I'm, if you we were sending up, I'm just going to wrap up by saying something that's really exciting in the lung field at the moment is... The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which is an American cystic fibrosis charity, has just started their race to the cure. So their vision is that they're going to take advantage of all the lung stem cell biology and amazing progress in gene editing in order to develop a cure for anybody with cystic fibrosis, quite possibly a a locally genetic engineered cure for your lung cells. And it's just 10, 15 years ago, even five years ago, this would have been unrealistic. Now they're talking 20, 30 years. We don't want to see any children suffering. And it's, it feels like it's within touching dif- distance in my lifetime.
0: And I guess with cystic fibrosis, um, you kind of not only touch lungs, but so many other parts of the body, which is quite fascinating as well.
1: Really a challenge um, for the race to the cure, but I think a fabulous challenge to have. So we do a tiny little bit of work that's related to this, and it's wonderful to think that we're making a small contribution.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I've read some papers about the disease and it's great that you're contributing a bit to the study, to finding a cure.
1: Small contribution.
0: A small is better than nothing. You never know. The smallest contribution could be the biggest. Like the hypoxia discovery that led to a Nobel Prize. So never underestimate small contribution, I think. I think this is a nice way to end our talk. So I would like to thank you very much for talking to me, Emma. And I think it's been a really interesting discussion. I've learned a lot because I was a slightly ignorant person here of lung. So it was a great opportunity for me to learn a new like disease model that is actually applicable to some, so many other fields. And thank you very much. And I hope you enjoyed talking to us.
1: Very much so. It was a fun discussion. And thank you very much for inviting me.
0: So thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. And as always, we'll have more exciting talks coming up in the coming weeks. Thank you very much. Bye.